Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that, although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The word of the Lord. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we are working through a short letter in the New Testament. Who uh, was it was written by one of Jesus's disciples named Peter. Um, so you may have been tracking with us. But you know, as I was reflecting this week, I was thinking to myself how hard it is often to follow Jesus. I mean, for one, you've got the challenge of just reading the book that Christianity is based on, uh, the Bible. Uh, there are certainly the main message, the main storyline of the Bible is simple and clear, but there are passages that you come to. For example, verse 1 of today's text, the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. That's a tough, that's a, I don't know, if, I don't know about you, but that's a tough passage. It's hard. What's that all about? But Christianity is also hard uh, because of how countercultural it is. Uh, sure, Kanye West may bring it single-handedly, bring it back into vogue, but it's unlikely. Uh, and this passage has some hard pills to swallow. Uh, doesn't Christianity curtail my freedom? Doesn't it constrict me and and sort of confine me in a box? Final judgment: somebody who is coming to judge the living and the dead. I mean, are you for real? That just sounds so antiquated and. And just sounds old. Uh, and, and final judgment based on whether I party too hard, uh, you can't be serious, right? Following Jesus is immensely difficult. Here's the way one writer put it. For those whom the Lord has chosen and condescended to welcome into fellowship with him should prepare themselves for a life that is hard, laborious, troubled, and full of many and various kinds of evil. Today, I just want to look at two, two questions that I think come out of this text. First, why is it so hard to live for God? And then second, what are reasons to live for God? The main point of this passage, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, is right in verses 1 and 2, uh, where Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires but for God's will. Peter says, look, you've got to see the why of Jesus' suffering and you have to use that mindset to live for God. Begs the question, what was Jesus' mindset? As Jesus suffered... He knew he was laying down his life for another. He wasn't self-focused. 
He was other-focused. He wasn't living for his own will. He was following the will of God. So Peter is saying, you've got to use that knowledge in order to live a life not for yourself, but for God. Why is that hard? That's the question that I want to explore right now. Why is that hard? It's hard first, I think, for many of us uh, because of our past, because we're uh, habituated toward living for ourselves. Isn't it interesting in verse 3 that Peter sort of just comes out and assumes that his audience has at one time or another found themselves caught up in drunkenness and orgies. That's what he says. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles, that's his way of referring to people who were not Christians, who were unbelievers. Uh, Hasn't there been enough time of doing what the Gentiles do? And that should say something to us this morning about the grace of God, that Christianity isn't in the business of perfecting nice people. It's about saving the lost, the least, and the dead. Peter is saying this. He's saying, look, you've already had enough time doing what the culture is doing, doing what the world is doing. You've already lived that life. And to be honest, I think this is partially why for many of us, Christianity is hard. It's hard because our actions shape us. Our action, the things that we do actually change us. You know that that's true, right? You, you know that from experience. You start at the stop sign just replying to that one text, and then pretty soon you're going down the five freeway at 80 miles an hour watching YouTube videos. Uh, you miss church that one Sunday for the soccer game. It's not going to happen again. And then, well, I'm tired I've worked all week. It's church, right? It's not a big deal. You get home and you have a beer after work just to take the edge off. And then weeks down the road, you're not even to dinner time and you're four martinis deep. The innocent flirting with the coworker during the lunch meeting evolves into texting. And then what? See, living for God's will is hard because... I think for a lot of our pasts, we've been conditioning ourselves to live for ourselves. And our actions are constantly shaping our hearts. So our pasts, I think that's what Peter's talking about. But he's also mentioning, he's also talking about the pressure, the cultural pressure that exists in any time and place uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a place, when people are trying to follow God, when they're trying to live for God, there's immense pressure to not do that. Living for God is tough. It's hard because it means living under immense cultural, cultural pressure. That's verse 4. These Gentiles, these unbelievers, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And then he gives the list and he says, when you don't participate in these things, they slander you. Peter says they're surprised. What are they surprised about? Well, actually, the language is, is, is significantly stronger than just surprise. The word that Peter uses here, it means literally to cause a strong psychological reaction through the introduction of something new or strange. See, these early Christians had distanced themselves from the lifestyles of their unbelieving neighbors. And what was their culture's reaction? What was the response? They were shocked. They were appalled. 
But it's not just the surprise of the strangeness of Christians. The surprise, as Peter notes, transition, it it morphs, it evolves into slander. Now, it's hard to exactly know uh, at this point in history when Peter was writing uh, entirely what he's referring to, what they were facing, what these Christians were up against. But if if you delve into the historical record, it's clear that oftentimes in In lots of different cultures, Christians are labeled as bigots, unsophisticated, atheists, incestuous, backwards. And on many occasions, Christians end up getting blamed for social ills. And even on some occasions, brought to trial and condemned for refusing to engage in certain political and social movements. And there seems to be this kind of impulse that Peter is getting at. He's what he, this impulse of a culture that says uh, that it's not so much that Christians can just coexist with people of different lifestyles, but what does he say? They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. What he's saying is there's oftentimes you'll face a pressure to not just coexist with people who live or think or believe differently than you do, but there's a pressure to actively join in, to approve, to affirm, to celebrate ways of living that are contrary to God's will. And if you don't, you might face more than just opposition. You might be slandered. So there's, your, your, there's our past. There's also, there's also pressure, immense cultural pressure, which makes it difficult which makes it hard to live for Jesus. But there's also power. What do I mean? There's also a power that's, that's, that's actually working within us and, and it's resulting in a kind of life that makes it difficult to live for God. What do I mean? Living for God's will is hard because it runs contrary to a power that exists in the core of who we are. There's a power, a power dynamic that exists in the core of who we are. Look at verse 3. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. What Peter is saying is he's giving a list there of the things that should definitely not characterize a follower of Jesus. He's saying you come to Jesus, yeah, the weekend keggers, they have to go. You come to Jesus, sorry, but the profligate sex parties, That's not going to work anymore. Uh, But right at the center of verse 3, he talks about evil desires. And I get the translation. I know why they're using uh, that that phrase there. But it's actually the word. It's just one word. Uh, And you could translate it as desires. Uh, And the word basically, it's it's more neutral. I, I mean to say it's more neutral than evil desires. You could translate it just desires. And the word basically means a great desire or a craving or a longing or what some writers call an inordinate desire. Now, what's fascinating about this is you could read this passage, verse 3, and you could basically, uh, from I think probably a majority of us sitting in this room, you could fill it out as some kind of have you ever questionnaire. Have you ever been drunk? No. Have you ever been in an orgy? No. Have you ever participated in carousing? I don't know what that is, but no. Uh, But when you come to evil desires, when you come to this word epithemia in Greek, 
It entails an all-controlling longing. So what Peter is saying is uh, it's, it's, it's not even so much that God cares about our behaviors, although he does, but that he cares about our thoughts. He cares about our desires. He cares about our hearts. He cares about our fantasies even. And Peter is drawing from this from this deep anthropological principle that is tied through both the Old and New Testament where the Bible teaches that desires often become deep things that motivate, drive, control our actions, our attitudes. The Bible says that what sin does is create in us a longing that we must have something. Here's how one author puts it. He says, if idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift away from God, then desires, this word in 1 Peter 4, epithemia, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for that same drift. The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life-ruling desires. Do you see what he's saying? Uh, and actually, Peter says he's, there's, there's both there. There's desires and idolatry in the, same, in the same verse. What Peter is saying is that there has got to be a new motivational system at your core. See, at the very center of who we are, we have got to drive a motivational system that centers on a goal that we believe is beautiful and good and desirable. And that goal produces what we think are needs, things that we think we need. And things which we must attain, we must have. And a lot of those times, those desires are good. Those things are, uh, they're family, it's career, it's relationship, it's experiences. But our sinful hearts twist those desires. And then we begin to crave them, long for them, build our lives on the attainment of them in order to justify ourselves. Let me give you an example uh, from a film several years ago, the movie Creed. You may have seen it. Uh, Creed is about the son of uh, uh, um, Apollo Creed who fought Rocky, uh, Sylvester Stallone's character, and uh, the character Adonis Johnson who goes by the name of Donnie. He's getting coached by Rocky Balboa, Sylvester Stallone. And at one point in, 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 when he's fighting, when he's in a, in a boxing match, Donnie is pleading with Rocky. He's pleading with him not to let Donnie quit. And he says, let me finish it. I have to prove it. And Rocky's character says, prove what? And Creed says that I'm not a mistake. I think many of us live our lives by that. We're trying to, ju- we're trying to prove that we're something, that we mean something, that we matter, that we aren't a mistake. So it's hard to live for God because many of, many of our pasts uh, our, our history, the, our history of our, our habits and patterns has made it easy, easy to assimilate to the culture around us. It's hard to live for God because there is intense cultural pressure to not just, not just coexist with the culture, but affirm the culture, celebrate the culture, join in with the culture. And it's hard to live for God because at our core is a motivational system that is constantly churning out desires by which we believe we can prove ourselves, attain worth, experience lasting joy. It's hard to live for God. So let me suggest to you from 1 Peter 4 
what are reasons to live for God. See, I've been trying to make the case that there are both external and internal realities that make living for God extremely hard, intensely hard, what one writer calls laborious and full of evil. But at the heart of Peter's message here is that there's a truth for our minds that when we reason it out, there's a mental, a way of mentally processing that when we reason it out, it makes it both reasonable and desirable to live for God. That's what he's saying in verse 1. You have to have this understanding, this mental process, this truth by which you can live for God. So what are some of those reasons? First, very simply, unlike our internal desires or the standard of the culture, what Peter calls the human standard, being judged according to the human standard, God's will and God's standards do not change. I'm not going to belabor this point, but look, your desires, my desires, are an incredibly inadequate compass by which to navigate your life. The reality is in this true, the reality is that those things often conflict with each other. Living your life according to your desires is totally unworkable. I want to be in really good physical shape. I also want to eat an entire pizza. I'd like to regularly smoke, but I don't want to die of lung cancer. See, our desires are often incompatible and irrational. And cultural standards, are you kidding me? What passes for truth and goodness today in this cultural moment will be laughable in less than a generation. Think about that. Some of you may have seen the, new, the, the meme that's been like all over uh, this uh, OK Boomer meme, uh, you know, the sort of the millennial and boomers uh, at each other's throat, and uh, anytime the boomers say something, OK Boomer. Uh, see, what was, what was prized, what was the, the standard ethic of one generation is now mocked and ridiculed. That's going to happen to this generation, to this cultural moment, I guarantee it. See, we need something external to ourselves that stands outside of not just us, but also the culture that transcends all cultures. In short, we need God's will as he's revealed it in the Bible. This is a standard that does not change. It is a standard that is perfectly consistent with itself. It will not fail you. It will not disappoint you. Christian friend, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this word. See, we need a standard outside of our own standard. That's a reason to live for God because he's written it all right here for you. Second, contrary to Drake's opinion, you don't only live once, you live twice. That's what Peter says. He says, Everyone will give an account of the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. See, part of the context of what's happening in 1 Peter is that there are people who appear to be saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This was, in fact, a common notion in the ancient world. You live one life, so live it up. It's the only chance you get. And look, if there is no afterlife, if there is no final judgment, if there is no super 
uh, supernatural accountability after death, then it absolutely makes perfectly rational sense to live a life only for yourself. But Peter says, no. Everyone has to give an account. They have to justify themselves. They have to prove that their life mattered, that it made a difference, that they contributed something good. Now, what that means is that there is a day coming when Jesus will separate the good from the bad. And in some sense, I could see how that might be good news because we don't really know ourselves. As I said a moment ago, our desires conflict with each other. We don't know where the the good begins and the evil begins, but we know it's, it's sort of tangled up inside of us. But what he's saying is there will come a day when Jesus, who does, he will untangle that and he will separate the good from the bad in us. But it's also incredibly bad news if you think about it for one moment because if you're really if I'm really honest with myself there are things in my life there are elements of my thought world there are fantasies that I have that are deeply wrong deeply out of whack with what I know the world is and should be sure You may not spend your Saturday night at an orgy, but maybe you spend it pushing ahead on a work project because it's there that you tap your meaning. So Peter says, you don't live once, you live twice. That's a reason to live for God. But third and finally, this is where he says, this is, if you get this, if you understand this, this is a reason to live for God. This is what he says, you are finished. To my Christian friends here this morning, you are finished with sin. You've got to put your thinking caps on for this one. Peter says that there's one who is coming to judge the living and the dead, and he calls that the gospel. And for most of us, I think, uh, you know, whether we've been a Christian for the last week or the last 40 years, uh, we, hear the, we hear the language of final judgment, and that does not sound like good news. But that's what he says. He says in verse 6, this is the reason that the gospel, the good news, was preached to those who are now dead. If you want to know more about that, come to the Q&A. How in the world can, can God being the judge of the living and the dead be good news for you? The answer is in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. The judgment of the living and the dead is good news because the one doing the judging is the one who has suffered in the flesh. The one doing the judging is the one who has suffered in the flesh. It's interesting. If you know the Apostles' Creed, which we regularly recite here at Trinity, we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's one of the lines of the creed. And it's interesting because it's the only reference in the Apostles' Creed of Jesus' life between his birth and his death. The creed is saying that this word suffering sums up the entire scope of Jesus' life. And that's fascinating because you can already see that emerge and come out of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus summed up his whole ministry in Luke 24 by saying, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things? Paul in the book of Acts characterizes Jesus' life by saying, it was necessary for the Messiah 
to suffer. And when the writer of the Hebrews describes Jesus' whole story from birth to death, he says he suffered. One word sums up all of Jesus' life. He suffered. So here's the remarkable truth, the breathtaking truth. Jesus is the one coming to judge the living and the dead because he is the one who has suffered in the flesh. Why did he do it? What was his mindset? What was his understanding? What was his way of thinking as he suffered in the flesh? Well, in the book of Hebrews, we get an extraordinary glimpse. It's a small glimpse, but it's an incredible insight into Jesus' mindset as he went to the cross, as he suffered from birth to his death at the cross. In Hebrews 12, the writer says, Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Do you see what Jesus' mindset was? Do you see his understanding? It was for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? What was his heart's desire, his longing, the thing that motivated him, that empowered him to endure that kind of suffering through his whole life, but especially at the cross? What was that joy? Friend, you, you are that joy. You are the joy that was set before Jesus. Being in a resurrected body with Jesus at the Father's party of the the slain fatted calf, you were the joy that filled his mind. What does that mean? It means a couple things. I'll close here. There are some of you today who have been beating yourselves up over your sin. There are things about your life that you can't shake, that you can't get rid of, and you're constantly just beating yourselves up over that sin. And you know what Scripture says to you today? Stop it. Don't you realize that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all? That he suffered in the flesh once for all? What do you think your attempts to placate God are actually doing? Do you think he needs your discouragement? Do you think he needs your attempts to say sorry, to feel sorry about what you've done? That He doesn't need that at all. What God is interested in is the personal, perfect, perpetual obedience of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial substitutionary death on your behalf. He was the righteous one who suffered in the flesh. And through his life and his death, he has made you once for all righteous before God. There's no buts, there's no ands, there's no exceptions. It's period, full stop. And to those of you here today, maybe you aren't, maybe you this is maybe you've come today, you've been invited, and you're thinking to yourself, all of the things that I have done in my life, my thought world, my fantasies, the things that I have done, the lifestyle that I've been living, you, you maybe think that you're too lost, you're too damaged, you're beyond the reach of God's grace. 
And God says to you this morning, friends, he says that I'm finished with your sin. It's done. It's finished. Because on the cross, Jesus atoned for it completely. That's what we're saying. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Your sin is done. You can leave this place knowing it's finished once for all. That's amazing news. That's glorious news. It's the best news that you'll ever hear. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us Jesus, the one who suffered in the flesh, the one who has made the full atonement, the full propitiation, endured the full force of your wrath against our choices, our decisions, our sin, our desires. And you have raised him up to everlasting life to be the judge both of the living and the dead. We know this is good news because Jesus has done it all. He's paid it all. There's nothing left for us to do but receive the free gift of the gospel. So open wide our hands and our hearts. Help us, Holy Spirit, to receive it, to rest in it by faith alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.